Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We'll get started in just a moment. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing so that you may stay up to date with the latest podcast. And if our podcast brings value to your life, please consider sharing it with family and friends. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. All right, so it has been a minute uh, since I have brought a word. Um, It's been a couple of years, but way back in 2018, uh, I delivered a message that I called, Where's Our Wonder?, uh, it was the week before Christmas, and it was all about how do we keep the awe and the joy and the appreciation for Christ's coming year-round, right? It's not just a flash in a pan, good, yay, Christmas, and move on. How do we sort of maintain that attitude? And so the message that I'm bringing today, almost five years later, is sort of the companion piece to that. It's a continuation message and sort of the sister sermon in some way to that. And uh, it's going to be another thought-provoking question that we're all going to try to answer together. Uh, We'll get to that in a minute, but I want to go ahead and state the obvious. Uh, I know that Pastor John has had some opportunities lately for people to come up and hold props during his messages. I don't have any of that today. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm even more sorry to tell you that unlike uh, Bishop Tom Madden three weeks ago, I do not have any donuts. I know, I know. But I do have uh, something for you, something very small, not as good as donuts. I have an outline. Who likes outlines? All right, if you're a note taker, this one's for you. All right, so here's my attempt to tell you where we're going. I want to give you a roadmap for where we're going so you can wrap your mind around it. Hey, and if nothing else, you won't be surprised by what we're talking about, okay? I can't do donuts, but I can make sure that you're not caught off guard. Uh, So here you go, one, two, three, four, easy to remember. One big question. We're going to ask one big question, okay? We're going to look at two spiritual interpretations of that question or of those verses in the Bible. We're going to look at three ways to address that question, three ways that we can improve our answer to that question, and then four areas to focus on. One, two, three, four. I see some note takers out there. I'm a note taker myself, so good job you. Everyone else, well, you'll just be along for the ride, I guess. All right, so uh, let's start this thing with the big question. It's also the name of our sermon today or the message that I'm bringing today, and it's this. I asked five years ago, uh, where's our wonder? I'm asking today, how's your harvest? How's your harvest? Uh, It's a great question to ask uh, for this time of year. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but as of tomorrow, we are one month past the autumnal equinox, the start of fall, and we are one month from, brace yourselves, Thanksgiving, as of tomorrow, okay? So it's the perfect time, smack dab in the middle, the perfect time to be talking about fall and harvest. The fall decorations are up. At our house, we have a little pumpkin with a cat coming out of it. It's the first time we've ever done anything like that. And I forget almost every night to unplug it before we go to sleep. So it just runs just constantly. Uh, The families are going out and getting fall photos taken. Uh, Squirrels are storing up their acorns. Leaves are changing and falling and clogging up all of our gutters, I'm sure. It's the great time to talk about fall. Uh, In fact, the only thing that would make it better is my wife told me to get a cornucopia and have it up here on stage when I was speaking. I do know what one is but I don't know where to get one. So if you know where to get one, see me after service, and then maybe next year if I do another thing, then I can have a cornucopia. 
but really, the reason that I wanted to talk about harvest, aside from it being an appropriate topic for this time of year, is because agrarian imagery, agricultural imagery, references to farming, planting, sowing, reaping, is all over the Bible, right? If you've read your Bible for even like a day, you've probably come across a verse that references some sort of harvest imagery. And so what I wanted to do was start to analyze that, sort of have a conversation around harvest. And whether or not it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, you're going to see it. Um, and so I want to have a little bit of history lesson. We're going to go back in time. We're going to get in our you know, imaginary time machine, and we're going to talk about uh, Old Testament, New Testament history. We're going to talk about uh, basically Greek economy. Does that sound fun to anybody? Any history buffs in the house? No? Okay. All right, so uh, the Industrial Revolution started in 1760. Okay, so imagine this. The Bible was written thousands of years ago. The Industrial Revolution starts in 1760. That gives us things like, uh, I don't know, the steam engine, uh, the electric generator, indoor plumbing. All right, they didn't have any of that. So they're not going to have any references to that in the Bible. Then you have the second Industrial Revolution or the Technological Revolution. That happened in 1870. That gave us the automobile, the assembly line, transcontinental railroad, all of that stuff that we know and reference and talk about and appreciate, especially the indoor plumbing. Uh, they didn't have any of that. And so you have to think for a moment, that was their frame of reference. Their experience, their livelihood, their lifestyle was agricultural. And so that's what they talked about. And it's not that agriculture isn't a part of our economy today or a part of society today. It very much is. It's just that it's no longer the only option. Okay. And so there's a lot more things that we reference and talk about. Uh, but in the ancient times, uh, the main two occupations were, get this, farming and raising cattle. So in the Old Testament, you were either a farmer or you were a rancher, I guess. I don't know. A cattleman or woman. Uh, anywho, uh, so that time in the Old Testament, that was it. Those were your two occupations. Uh, the Egyptians were really great at agriculture. They sort of pioneered a lot of farming techniques uh, they raised a lot of grains and beans, and then after the Israelites took over the promised land, which was known for being a very, very fertile land, a lot of high elevation, a lot of mountain peaks that flowed water in, then they excelled at the practice too. So they started growing a lot of crops. Um, and then it was so important to them that at a certain point, they started developing a calendar that broke the year into six agricultural periods. Now, I don't speak Hebrew, so I'm not even going to begin to pronounce those words, but I'm going to tell you their basic English equivalents, talk about those periods so that you can understand, again, where we're coming from. We're setting the, the framework here. Okay, so the first one, uh, each period has a first and a second half, and they kind of align with our calendar today. Uh, the first one was sowing time. Sowing time. This was uh, right about the time of the autumnal equinox, so for us around September 23rd. Uh, this is the first showers of autumn. This is when they're starting to actually go in and plant stuff. Then you have the second portion, the second part of the calendar, which is, and I love this one, not yet ripe time. All right? So if that tells you anything, you're growing stuff, but it's not yet ripe. So just wait a little longer. All right? The third one is the cold season. The cold season. So this is the third period. Uh, this is where you get, quote, the latter rain. So you have the early rains of autumn, you have the latter rains, and that's what you see in verses like Deuteronomy uh, 11.14 talks about the latter rain. Jeremiah 5.24 talks about the latter rain. Again, both sort of a physical and a spiritual component to that. Then you get into where we are now, which is harvest time. All right, harvest time, the first half. 
aligned with the vernal equinox in summer and went till Passover. Then you've got this second half where the, the wheat is ripe and that aligned with Pentecost. So you kind of have this time between two of their, their holidays. You've got summer, which the way that they described it was total absence of rain which we live in Georgia, we can maybe not attest to the rain, but we can definitely attest to this one, which has a weird name. Don't let it fool you. The sultry season. I told you it had a weird name. Uh, but this is essentially summertime in Georgia. It said it was the time of oppressive heat and high humidity. Right? Where, is where you walk outside. My wife tells me I walk outside and her hair gets big. So, yeah, that's that time of year. Uh, so that's the Old Testament environment. That's the world in which they lived. Then if you look at the New Testament, it's much the same. You're going to see a lot of similar stuff. The early Greek economic system was entirely based on farming. Uh, In fact, a lot of their subsistence, so a lot of the foods that they ate as a community, came from small family farms, small local farms. Uh, They did a lot of barley and wheat, olives and grapes. And then sort of that second tier, again, not just cattle. They expanded their horizons by the time we get to the New Testament. You've got sheep, goats, horses, donkeys, and, of course, cattle. All of those things were uh, very significant for them, very meaningful to them. Uh, And then when you get into this idea of, okay, well, how did they sort of sustain it? Well, you guys have heard a lot of the sort of Greek battles between city-states and someone going after someone and someone fighting somebody, and it seemed like every emperor was going after somebody else. A main cause of that? was fertile land. Unpredictable rain, famines, droughts, etc., caused them to do a lot of fighting between city-states so that they could have the best land, so that they could have the best crops, so that they could lead to sort of better success for themselves, their families, their communities. All right? And so historical record time and time and time and time again shows the importance, the value of harvest. And it's something that maybe we've lost now thousands of years later, uh, but it's no different than some of our references to... Uh, you know, modern technology, a lot of our symbolism, right? You think about if you were to go into Microsoft Word and you wanted to save a document, what does it look like? A floppy disk, right? We don't even use floppy disks anymore, but that's our reference point because that's the technology we knew. And so Jesus, when he's telling these parables and he's giving these lessons and he's sharing these stories, he's using imagery and language that his people would understand, all right? And so that's sort of why you see all of this agrarian imagery. Yes, there's physical mentions of Uh, a harvest, an actual reaping, an actual sowing, but there's a spiritual connection to all of this language that we can't overlook and we can't overstate, and that's what we're going to sort of zoom in on today. All right, so I want to give you some verses. Uh, I'll give you some verses that sort of use this harvest imagery so that you know I haven't been lying to you for the past 10 minutes. Um, So first, we're going to go to James. James 3, verse 18. Basically, you're going to start to see peace. You know, we've got this. Those who are peacemakers, they plant seeds of peace, and they reap a harvest of righteousness. So again, sowing and reaping, harvest imagery. Uh, Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. Do not be deceived or don't be misled. You can't mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful, uh, sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. And this is a verse you may have heard before, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we'll reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So again, harvest imagery. All right, I'm going to give you one more example. Uh, This one is uh, an account of something Jesus said himself. Uh, So let's look at Luke 10, verses 1 and 2. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great but the workers are few. 
So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. All right, that, you may have heard a very similar one. It's mirrored in Matthew. So if you look in Matthew chapter 9, it's a very similar account. Uh, it says a little bit different language around what Jesus was doing. It says he was going from town to town, healing uh, every kind of disease. And he has compassion on these people. It says that he had compassion on the people and said to his disciples, the harvest is great, the laborers are few. And their response was to pray for more workers. And so here's the next part of the roadmap that I shared with you. We're analyzing one big question, and we're going to do it through two spiritual interpretations. So anytime, this is your sort of frame, this is your, this is your, your playbook, your litmus test, right? Anytime you see harvest imagery in the Bible, it's going to align with one of five meanings, one of five things. The first is a literal harvest, all right? There's chances that some verses are talking about a literal harvest. Isaiah 30, 23 talks about God proph- uh, prophesies about God blessing his people, and it is a very literal harvest. Their storehouses will overrun. They will have an abundance. They will have plenty. And so it's a literal harvest. Uh, then there's, no, the second one is a specific reference to generosity. So sometimes it talks about we're harvesting righteousness by sowing generosity. Uh, you can look that up in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The third thing, uh, the third potential meaning of harvest imagery is God's judgment or separating believers from non-believers. There's references to separating the wheat from the chaff. Um, and you can find some of that imagery in Matthew chapter 13 or the book of Joel, which I think we studied on a Wednesday night, also talks a lot about harvest imagery in sort of an end times mindset. Uh, the fourth one is the result of your righteousness, the fruit you bear. Right, So those verses are all over. We just read something in James and Galatians that sort of alluded to that. What do we reap, uh, or pardon me, what do we sow, and what do we reap as a result of those actions? And then the fifth one is the spiritual receptivity or the spiritual hunger of people around you, uh, as in Luke 10 and Matthew 9. So Jesus talking about the harvest is great, there is a great hunger, there is a great thirst for what we are doing, but the laborers are few. And so it's those last two interpretations, the fruit that we bear and the spiritual receptivity of people around us, uh, that we're going to talk about today. Now, I know when we talked all that history stuff, I probably lost some of you. Uh, Maybe your eyes glazed over. If you need to nudge somebody next to you and wake them up, please do, because this is where we're really getting into sort of the meat of the message, right? I wanted you to understand the history, to have that foundation, but now here's the spiritual implication. Here's what it means for us. That's where we're transitioning into So when I ask about your harvest, I'm not asking you how your garden's doing. I'm not asking you about that first one, a literal harvest. Uh, I'm not asking about your capacity to give, though it is important. No, I'm going to ask you when we think about, okay, how's your harvest? I'm asking you first to consider what fruit am I bearing in my life? And then what is the spiritual barometer of the people around me? Are they hungry for what you have? Is it being shown outside of you so that people are interested? So that you're creating an open opportunity for people to say, okay, something's different about him or her. Let me go and have a conversation. So I want to make sort of a a, a connection here for you. In Proverbs 4.23, a well-known verse, it says to guard your heart above all else because everything you do flows from it, it, right? Actions start in the heart. And then in Matthew 7, Jesus says that you can know a false prophet by the fruit they bear. Right? He said, hey, a, a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. They can't do the opposite. Um, and so Jesus says, yes, in reference to being false prophets or recognizing false prophets, but it's just as true. It's universally true. And so if we have those sort of connections, that if it starts in our heart and then flows into actions, what do those actions look like? 
So we're going to go to Galatians 5. We're not going to put it on the screen, but it gives us two categories of actions. It gives us the result of following our fleshly desires, right? It gives us a whole slew of things. I wrote some of them in my notes here. Things like sexual immorality, idolatry, jealousy, anger, selfish ambition, division, and drunkenness. And I think that's only like a third of the list. Uh, And then it gives us another category, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. It says, okay, this is the other possible outcome. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if a fruit of a tree either produces good fruit or bad fruit, there's two categories. There's two options. Galatians aligns with that. Later on, we'll talk about Colossians. It aligns with that. There's two categories of fruit. So it's important for us to sit here and say, okay, what kind of fruit are we bearing? Truly, what does our harvest look like? What are we sowing? And then what is the result of that? And so that's the first interpretation. That's the first lens. We'll dig into that. Uh, the, The second thing is this idea of that spiritual receptivity. And it kind of aligns with the first one. Because if you're bearing good fruit, people are going to be uh, sort of uh, drawn to you, right? If you're doing bad fruit and and you're doing these things that don't align with the fruit of the Spirit that we just saw in Galatians, then it's going to be repulsive. It's going to repel people. But in this specific example that Jesus is speaking into, it was an incredible hunger. It was an incredible thirst. And so when I ask, how's your harvest? Are the people around you hungry and thirsty for what you have to give? Is there a desire to have spiritual conversations with you? How is that look in your life? How is that playing out in the lives of the people around you? Um, this specific example, I love how Matthew Henry puts it. And so we're going to go to Matthew Henry's commentary for a moment. If you don't know who Matthew Henry is, uh, he lived in the 1700s, late 1600s, early 1700s. He was an English minister. Um, he started preaching at the time he was 24. Uh, and he held various pastoral roles all throughout his life. He wrote a lot of different works, but his sort of seminal work is his six-volume commentary on the Bible, in which he gave an exhaustive review of every single verse. Uh, Some number of years ago, I was gifted uh, that entire volume set. Please don't tell... Oh, this is going to be... I was going to say, please don't tell the person who gifted it, but hey, cat's out of the bag because this goes out online. They currently hold up things like decorations in our kitchen, but I still get them down from time to time, or I just look at the online version, which is what I did this time. Uh, It's incredible the way that he breaks down every single verse. And so this is what he says is going on here, and I love this, okay? He says, people desired at the time that Jesus is speaking, okay, and he's saying, hey, the harvest is great. He said, people desired good preaching, but there were few good preachers. He said, there was a great deal of work to be done, but they needed hands to do it. There were multitudes that needed instruction, and I love this, but it was what does not often happen that they who needed it actually desired it. It is a blessed thing to see people in love with good preaching. The valleys are covered over with corn. There are hopes that it may well be gathered in. That is a gale of opportunity that calls for double care and diligence of the workers in the improvement of it. It was a pity when it was so that the laborers should be few, that the corn would shed and spoil and rot upon the ground. So for us today, I dare say the harvest is still great. I dare say there's still a lot of people who need the teachings of Jesus. And are we laboring? Are we part of that? Are we meeting that need? Are we engaging with the people around us? And so he says it's rare that the people who want it or the people who actually need it want it. And so we've got to ask ourselves, are the people around us, are we creating an environment, an atmosphere by the things that we do, the way that we live, so that the people around us who need Jesus 
actually want Jesus as a result of our actions. Okay? And so these two interpretations go hand in hand. Again, if we're bearing good fruit, if we're living a life that aligns with the ways of God, with the word of God, then it's going to open the door for those spiritual conversations. And no one goes out to their garden and says, oh, yeah, uh, rotten squash. Yes. Right? No one says, I can't wait to share this moldy apple with my neighbor. No one says that. And if you did, you probably would be ostracized by your neighbors. They'd be like, don't talk to the people at House 50 because they offer you rotten food. No. People want good, healthy food. They want good, healthy fruit. They want good, healthy, uh, beneficial teaching from the lives of believers. And so that's what we've got to have. We've got to have good fruit, and by doing so, it will lead to greater spiritual receptivity. So how do we ensure that we have both of these things? How do we ensure that we're having good fruit in our lives? How do we ensure that we have a good harvest and cultivate that spiritual uh, receptivity or openness? Well, that's the next stop on the roadmap. So I talked about, all right, we're going to have three practical steps, three things that we can do. And so we'll, we'll get into each of these, and I want to talk about them. But again, this is where the rubber meets the road. So the first one is be committed. Be committed. A lot of the agrarian references that you'll find in the Bible talk about the strength or the growth of the plant. All right, Isaiah 61.3 talks about being oaks planted by God. Uh, Pastor John used that verse when he did his message about those who mourn in Zion, right? He's going to change their uh, beauty to give them beauty for ashes. And he's going to be, they're going to be like oaks planted in the water. Uh, there's uh, Colossians 2, 7 talks about our roots growing deep into the Lord. So there's so many verses in the Bible that talk about the growth, the stability of the plant. And, and, and for us, it's true. Before we can have a good harvest, we've got to grow. We've got to learn. We've got to, to be shaped, to be molded. Before you can have the reaping, you have to first have the sowing. Everything starts as a seed, right? The writer of Hebrews refers to this, this thing we call faith as a, uh, an endurance race. It's not a sprint. It's not get in, get out, get on with your life. No, it is an endurance race. It's going to take a lot of effort. And so we've got to be committed. It's not instant gratification. Unfortunately, we try to treat so many things of God like so many things in the world, which are instant gratification, and it leads to this disconnect. God, I prayed one time. Why didn't it happen? right? It's an endurance lifestyle. We, it's a committed lifestyle. And so you can determine your level of commitment by looking at two areas. You can look at your first one is your attitude. Do you look at spiritual disciplines, things like reading your Bible, praising God, going to church? Uh, you know, do you look at those things as have-to-dos or get-to-dos? Okay. What's your attitude toward those things, right? Because I think a lot of times we put the cart before the horse. We say, okay, if I want to be a good, quote, quote, good Christian, then I've got to do X and I've got to do Y and I've got to do Z. And if I don't read my Bible for 10 minutes, then I failed. No, we're putting the cart before the horse. It should be we have a relationship with Jesus. And by having a relationship with him, we get to do, we want to do. There is a natural proclivity or desire to do all of these other things, right? And so that's the first thing is your attitude. Now, I know there's times when... Things get hard. I've had seasons in my own life where it feels like God isn't listening. Prayer is difficult. Going to church is taxing. I get those things. But again, we try to view it like a checklist. Okay, I've, I've filled all the boxes. I did all my stuff. I'm a good Christian today. And instead, it's a relationship. We've made it religion when it should be relationship. Look, John 15, 5 says this. He says, uh, Jesus is the vine, Right? It says, I'm divine, you're the branches, you stay in me. I love the use of the word abide. Abide in me, 
and you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay? So again, harvest imagery, bearing fruit. What does it say is central? Being close to Jesus. Not doing X and Y and Z and fulfilling a checklist. Being close to Jesus. Communion, relationship with Christ. So how's your attitude? Is it a checklist for you? Is it, hey, I've got to get X and Y done? Is it, hey, I'm just doing it because I feel obligated? If I'm not at church, they're going to say, where is so-and-so? Or are you actually hungry? Do you come delighting? Are you joyful during praise and worship time? So check your attitude. The next thing that you want to look at, and it's the second side of the same coin, is your activity. All right, check your attitude, check your activity to determine your level of commitment. How active are you? How service-minded are you? What are you doing for the kingdom? Are you mindful of opportunities around you? Right? I think we look a lot of times for just the right thing to do, the right way to serve. We want to find the thing that aligns with our talents and gives us the warm fuzzies. And depending on you know, how we feel, maybe either puts us in the spotlight or gives us way away from the spotlight. We want our service opportunities to align with our personal preferences. And meanwhile, God is just waiting for us to do something, anything in service to the kingdom. So check your level of activity. Look, I want to show you a verse in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 11.4. Look at this. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. If they watch every cloud, they never harvest. If we are sitting here, church, waiting for the perfect day, the perfect opportunity, the perfect role, the perfect thing to align and make us feel fulfilled, we're not going to do it. The Bible says get busy. The Bible says start doing things. John 4, it says that some people plant while others harvest, right? And this is something that I think, again, if you've been in church for any length of time, you kind of understand. Some people are the ones who maybe they're the first people to talk about Jesus with a person. And maybe they don't say, hey, yeah, I believe it or I want to receive Christ's salvation at that point in time. But then there's another person that goes and does the harvest where they do come and they say, hey, I think I'm ready now. And so we try to find the role that's going to say, hey, it's going to give me, the again, the, the gratification that I want. But we've just got to recognize that we have a role to play. We've got a part to play, whatever it is. Whether we're the, the planter or the harvester, we need to do our role. I got any football fans in here? Five football fans? Good, okay. Look, if the quarterback scores, does the quarterback get the points? No, the whole team gets the points. Whether they run the ball or throw the ball, the team benefits. So whatever it is, the team benefits. If it's working in the nursery, if it's working in kids' church, if it's working in the booth, if it's cleaning a toilet, if it's setting up tables, whatever it is, the church benefits. The world outside benefits. So check your level of activity. We have created a spectator sport at a church. We've created an attitude that's a serve us rather than a service mindset. Right? Here's a third one. I got this one as I drove in today. It's not in my notes, so we'll see how it goes. You can, check your level, you can check your level of commitment by looking at your attitude. You can check the level of your commitment by looking at your activity. And you can also look at your attachments. That's the third one. Who and what are you attached to? More, arguably, right? The question is, is sort of the unstated, more than God. How committed are you? Are you committed enough to let it go? If God says, let's go. He had a lot of harsh language, right? We're about to get into another one. This is, again, I told you, the rubber's meeting the road right here. It's it's starting to get a little hot. He had a lot of harsh language to say about people who would follow him and turn away. 
Jesus. Jesus. He said, no one that puts his hand to the plow and looks to the left or the right is fit for service in the kingdom. He said, let the spiritually dead bury the dead. He said, we're on the move. If you're going to follow me, he's like, look, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Okay? What are you attached to? What's holding you back? What's keeping you from the level of commitment that Christ requires? Check your attitude. Check your activity. Check your attachments because it's time to be committed. That's the first way we improve our harvest. The second thing is be real. Be real. It's one of our things here. We're real, relational, and reaching. Be real. Uh, we had a great talk on Thursday night at our adult Bible study. Shout out to the adult Bible study. Uh, if you guys want to join, you can. We're a pretty awesome group of people. Uh, and we had a great talk. We talked, really, I say it's a great talk, but the subject matter, right, it was, it was a talk about how difficult life gets. It was a talk about how hard things are sometimes. And maybe it was such a great talk because we were all like, yep, uh-huh, that's true. Life's hard. Life's hard, but there's incredible value because life's hard in being real, right? It's one of the things, honestly, it's one of the reasons why we've stayed here for nine years. It's because this is a place where you can be real. I've been to other churches where there is a pretense, where there is an expectation for you to put on the mask and put on the smile and don't talk about your problems and get out as fast as you can. This is not that place. Because of the Taboo series, man, we've heard so many different topics that so many other churches aren't talking about. I've heard so many people confess from this stage or this pulpit or in the altar things that are going on in the lives of Christians, right? We've got to be real with each other. We've got to be real with ourselves. We've got to be real with God. We've got to be real with each other because that's holding us back. It's hindering our harvest. So if we're going to grow our harvest, that's what we've got to do. How do we do it? You've got to be vulnerable. You've got to be willing to be vulnerable. And I know usually, and I don't mean to paint in broad strokes here, that's a lot harder for men than it is for women, but we've got to be vulnerable collectively, okay? What does that look like? It means when someone's going through something, I think a lot of times, this was a really cool thing that we stumbled upon in our, in our small group conversation. A lot of times when other people are vulnerable, when they say, hey, I messed up, I fell, I did this, whatever, we come out of a place where we're up here. And we said, well, you should just, right? Someone says, hey, so-and-so is having difficulty in their marriage. Well, did they try counseling? Why do we do that? Why do we do it from up here? There's level, level footing at the foot of the cross, right? Level ground there at the feet of Jesus. Why don't we get into the pit with him and say, I've had difficult times too? Why don't we own our stuff? Why do we want to sit here and point a finger and say, man, it stinks to be you. You should figure it out. I'm sorry. I'll pray for you. Instead of saying, I've been there. I've dealt with that. This is what I did, right? I think so often, and we talked about this too. I'm just kind of just churning stuff up for you. We talked about this, right? When someone goes through something, we do the either I'll pray for you or I'm here if you need me. Let me know, let me know if I can do anything for you. I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty. Let me know if I can do anything for you. I don't know. What if I actually did something? What if I actually showed up? Not I'm here for you. I'm there for you. Where are you? I'm coming. We're praying. We're going to be together. Even if I don't have anything to say, we're going to be together. It takes vulnerability. It takes being real. And for whatever reason, we don't want to do it. But it's time to start doing it, church. The other side of this is we got to be real about what it means to be a believer. 
we have sold a hunky-dory gospel to so many people. And it's no wonder that the rise of the nuns, the rise of unchurched people, is the largest demographic of religious orientation or affiliation in America today. Because we told them it would be easy. We said, say this prayer, and guess what? All your troubles are going to disappear. And even if we didn't say it like that, we implied it. Because, again, we weren't vulnerable to begin with. We weren't real to begin with. So they saw a group of people have the face and have the mask and have the smile and said, well, if all their problems got blown away, then maybe mine will too. And at the first temptation, the first sin, the first slip up, they said, whoa, this wasn't what I thought it was. So we got to start being real. Again, the words that Jesus talked about, the things that he said, we've got to recognize there's a severity to the decision to follow Jesus. There's an, an importance, a weight to that decision. Yes, it brings with it so much benefit. I'm not trying to discredit that. But again, when you look at the things that Jesus said, he, Jesus himself said, count the cost. He said, before you follow me, count the cost, just as if you were going to sit down and build a house. Figure out if it's worth it to you. Because it isn't easy. Can we, can we say that in church? It's not easy. Life is hard. You know, I talk about harvest imagery in the Bible. You know, another imagery piece that recurs over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible? Fighting. Fighting against our sin nature. Why would he say it's a fight if it was easy? And why, if it is a fight, would we tell people it's not? Okay? There's a fight we wage. We're not always going to get it right. We're not always going to be okay. And here's what people outside the church don't want to see, is a bunch of people pretending to have it all together. You know what the people outside the church want to see? They want to see real people with real struggles, relying on a real God to bring about real change, in their lives. That's what they want. Have a conversation with anyone and say, hey, do you want me to be real with you or fake with you? You want me to be honest or do you want me to lie? I get, not even nine out of ten, ten out of ten times people will say, be real with me. Be honest. Don't lie to me. We've got to be real. And it starts with being vulnerable. It starts with being okay talking about our stuff. Look, when Pastor John opens these altars and says, hey, you can come pray about this or about anything... Theoretically, the altar should be full every week because anything means anything. And guess what? Anything can happen to anybody, whether you're saved or not. So we got to be honest. We got to be real. So that's the second thing we can do to analyze and answer and improve this question of the harvest in our lives. The third thing that we can do is be different. Be different. We've got to be committed. We've got to be real. We've got to be different. No doubt about it, if you look at Jesus' ministry while he was on the earth, it's countercultural. What we've done is created, I'm going to get sort of philosophic for a moment, we've created a Christian subculture, not a Christian counterculture. Jesus designed his ministry to be countercultural. Everything of the world flipped on its head, right? It wasn't enough. The, the prevailing opinions of the time were to do X and Y and Z, and that's how you got close to God. There was Gnosticism, which was knowledge of God, a head exercise, gets you closer to God. There was this idea that, okay, if uh, you're angry with someone, then you need to just, you know, patch it up. Jesus came in and said, if you're angry with someone, yeah, you need to patch it up. But get this, if you're also making an offering or a sacrifice and you realize that someone is mad at you, go and correct it. 
all right? They, Jesus came in and said, hey, everything that you've been taught, I'm going to do, what, this is what I call it, the ministry of the extra mile. It's not enough for you just to deal with people, your own anger. You need to be proactive in, in addressing other people's anger toward you. It's not enough just for you to not have any slander or lies or foul speech, but now you need to fill your mouth with good things, right? It's not about that you separate your, your uh, attachment to the things of the world, but I want you to give everything you have or half of everything that you have to the poor, right? It was this extra step. It was countercultural. Aside from being the, the God incarnate, right? That amazing, overwhelming fact that I'm sure if you believed it blew you away every time you thought of it. Can we just like pause for a second and imagine how cool that would have been? Like to be with him and to believe what he was saying. So aside from that, the fact that he was doing all of these countercultural things is why he had the calling he did. Why he had the following he did. Why he had the people who were clamoring. When he looked around and had compassion on the people because he was like, I don't have enough people to meet the needs. I don't have enough people with me. They craved his teaching. They craved his healing. They craved what he was doing because it was so different. He flipped everything on its head. They were used to piety and outward representation, right? Anytime, anytime Jesus says, hey, don't be like, he was talking about the religious people of the day. And he says, don't be like them who are, when they're, he says, when they're giving, they make a big show of it. Look what I'm doing. He said, no, your left hand shouldn't even know what your right hand's doing. He says, don't be like them, the religious people of the day, who, uh, who when they were fasting were walking around groaning and holding their stomachs and, oh my gosh, I'm so miserable. Did I tell you that I'm fasting? Hey, did I tell you I was fasting? Guess what? I've been fasting. He says, don't do that. Everything was countercultural. It wasn't about doing the right things on the outside. It was getting your heart right on the inside. Okay? So that's where I'm talking about when I'm saying be different. We've got to be the same. If he was countercultural then, it should still be countercultural now. But instead of, again, I'm going to loop back to this, instead of being counterculture, we've created a subculture, which is, guess what? If they have uh, secular rock music, we're going to have Christian rock music. And if they're going to have coffee shops outside the church, by golly, we're going to have a coffee shop inside the church. And if you go to a cool concert and they got a smoke show and a laser show, guess what? We're going to have smoke and laser shows. We copied everything that they're doing out there and attached a, a cross sticker to it or a fish sticker to it and said, now nah, it's the Christian version. That is not how it is supposed to be. As Christians, we are called to be different. Why do you think repentance is talked about so much in the Bible? Why do you think repentance is the gateway to salvation? Why? The word literally means to think differently, to change your viewpoint on a topic. I thought this sin was okay. I was not bothered by doing this. Now that I know it's bad, I'm going to change my mind about it so that I can more proactively and closely follow Christ. That's what repentance is. Changing your mind. Thinking different. Being different. When we're saved, there's a transformation that happens. Paul says we're no longer citizens of this earth. We're citizens of heaven. He tells us to live in light of eternity. As Christians, we've got to have different motivations different choices than the people around us that we know aren't saved. If there is no distinguishability between the two of us, what point is it? Where's the value? Where's the merit? If you took two people and said, hey, one of these guys is a Christian, one of them's not, can you pick them out? And they can't pick them out? Something is wrong. Something is terribly, frighteningly wrong. And unfortunately, church, that is too often the case. That is too often the case. So how do you know if you're being different? How do you know if you're being different? 
Are you clothing yourself, as it says in Colossians, in heavenly things or earthly things? And we'll dig a little deeper in a moment, but this is the last thing. I, I gave you guys my gift to you. wasn't a donut. It was an outline. And by golly, we're at the fourth stop on the outline, which is four areas to focus on. Four areas to focus on. So here's how you can start to analyze. Am I different? Am I truly being changed and transformed? Look at these four areas. The first one is your internal thoughts about yourself. Your internal thoughts about yourself. And we'll sort of talk about each one in turn. Pastor John talked about this one a couple of weeks ago with his message, Who Told You That? Right? What is your interior monologue telling you? What is it saying and does it align with the truth of God's word? Are you taking every thought captive? Are you? Are you different in your thought patterns? The other three areas are addressed in Colossians 3. Uh, I tell my kids, this is the phrase I say, I don't know where it came from. I'm pretty sure it came from a rap song. Uh, but I tell them, check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> like, if they start to act up, that's what I say. I'm like, hey, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Like, correct your own behavior before I got to correct it for you, right? That's what we're doing today. We're using these four areas to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves, before we get in trouble, okay? So the first one, your internal thoughts about yourself. The second one, again, all of this is in Colossians 3, and I'll talk a little bit about what he says. Uh, your internal thoughts about others. Internal thoughts about others. Are you different? Consider your internal thoughts. Paul says to have nothing. This is what he says in Colossians 3. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. All right? Now, a lot of things we think about other people, we think nobody else knows. And because we think nobody else knows, we think it's okay. But check yourself. Are you different? Are you different in these areas? Are you responding and thinking and acting and living just like them? Are the thoughts that you have towards others, things that you think no one else knows, do they truly align with the word of God? Be different. What about your external actions toward things? Are you different in that regard? We talked about attachments, right? Consider your external actions toward things. Paul says again, Colossians 3, don't be greedy for a greedy person is an idolater. I had never heard it put this way, and I love it. They're an idolater. Worshiping the things of this world. Again, what are your attachments? Do you have a selfish, greedy mindset toward money and things? Gimme, 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 accumulation of wealth, accumulation of riches. Are you storing up treasures here on earth? Or are you storing up treasures in heaven? Again, another, I'm going to loop back. Another part of that harvest imagery is generosity and our capacity to give. How tightly are we holding on to things? The fourth area, examine your external actions toward others. Paul says, Colossians 3, now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. He says a couple of verses later, don't lie to each other. It is very plain. Look, I want to be clear. There, there's, again, we talked earlier about November, right? There's, there's not a lot of opportunity in the church for the gray areas and the ambiguities of life. There's a lot that's open for interpretation, and we've got to figure it out, and we've got to surround ourselves with communities of believers who can help guide us and encourage us and give good, godly wisdom and instruction. There is no gray area in any of what Paul has said here. He says, now is the time to get rid of, have nothing to do with, don't lie to each other, full stop. It's pretty clear. So check your external actions toward others. 
Are the things that you're saying and doing and the way that you treat the people around you, arguably the people that you love most, are they different? I've seen some, some people who I knew were saved say and do some pretty vile things. And I'm sure if you guys would be honest, you'd say the same. Chewing people out, belittling, discouraging. Why? Where does it say that's okay in the Bible? Can anyone give me that scripture reference? Are we different? We've got to be different. If we're truly going to bear good fruit, if we're truly going to enhance the spiritual receptivity and openness, which I know I've been using that fancy phrase, this is what that means. People getting saved. If you're not doing the work that gets people talking and interested and attracted to the message of Jesus, then people aren't getting saved. And if people aren't getting saved, then what's the point? That's what we're opening the door for. That's why this thing matters. That's why it exists. That's why we're here week in and week out. Not so that we can be fed and say, awesome, sweet, cool. Jesus said, look, the sick are the ones who need the doctor. The people who are healthy don't need a doctor. If you're in the house and you've been saved, awesome, great. But now let's get to work. If we come in here and we say, hey, that's good preaching. See you later. Can't wait to come back and see what you say next. No. We're to take it. I love the analogy, and I don't know where I picked it up, but it's like a vessel that's being filled. So we come in, and we get our cup filled, and we've got a full cup of God and his message and his love that we take out to the world. And we're supposed to give it to everyone who wants it and everyone who needs it. And we come back in next week, and guess what? We have an empty cup. And we get it filled again, and we go back out, and we give it to everyone who needs it. If we're real, there's a lot of full cups in this room. You came in with a full cup. It got overflowed. You're going to leave with a full cup. And next Sunday, I hate to say it, but we're probably going to come back with full cups again. Why? Because we're not committed, we're not real, and we're not different. And as a result, our harvest isn't great. And again, I'm painting in broad strokes. I'm speaking in sort of generalities about the church as a whole, but we've got to address some things. Corey, would you come? We've got to address some things. And the reason we've got to address it is because the Bible's very clear. Remember what we talked about earlier. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. There's no medium fruit. It's good or bad. When you look at that end time imagery about separating the wheat from the chaff, there's two categories. I did another message one time called, Are You In? Are You In or Are You Out? Right, that idea of, hey, are we really committed here? The Bible is very clear. You will reap what you sow. There will be a result. There will be a harvest. If you sow discord, guess what you're going to reap? Discord. You sow division, you will reap division. No one plants uh, an orange tree, and then when a cherry tree grows, they're like, gosh, I did. How cool is that? That's exactly what I wanted to happen when I planted that orange seed. No. What you put in comes out. It's like the old Snapple slogan, right? Put good in, get good out. It's that idea. You sow unforgiveness, you're going to reap unforgiveness. But if you sow peace... You're going to reap peace. 
In fact, it says you're gonna reap a harvest of righteousness by sowing peace. You may not realize it or you may have forgotten it, but this is why it's so important. This is why I'm talking with such intensity today. What happens corporately begins individually. I'm gonna say it again. What happens corporately begins individually. If you're sitting here and saying, why are we as a church numb, ineffective, powerless? It's because we as individuals are numb, ineffective, and powerless. We've got to respond. We've got to make some changes and make some adjustments. Will you stand with me today? If we are going to move the church forward, if we're going to expand the kingdom, it starts with us. It starts with taking the truth of the word and responding to it. And that response could look different for some of you. But again, the central question remains true, and I want to ask you again, how's your harvest? How are the results of your own faithfulness and obedience today? Are you bearing good fruit? Are you bearing any fruit at all? Did you bring in a lot this year? Did you bring in a little? What's the spiritual receptivity and openness of the people around you? Are they hungry for what you have to give? Are they attracted to you and recognize the difference in you? Or are they repulsed by your behavior? And so, well, there's nothing different about him or her, so what's the point? It's the question we have to answer. We've got to answer it again individually. And look, I'm going to say what Pastor John says all the time, which is these altars are open. You can pray about this message, any message, anything going on in your life. If you don't want to come to the altar, that's fine too. I'm going to give you the the free pass this week. You can stay at your seat because God can deal with you anywhere. But if you want to come, come. But I hope what we'll do is we'll recognize that we've got to address some things individually so that we can improve our harvest corporately so that we can get busy doing the work of the kingdom. Amen. Will you join me in praying? Father God, we thank you for this time that we've had. We thank you for the truth of your word, separating even bone from marrow. Lord, I know this word was was tough. God, I pray that you encourage us, that you bolden us. God, I know that there's changes we need to make. God, I pray that we respond in some way, whatever it is you're calling us to do, whatever it is your spirit is leading us even now. God, I pray that we make those changes, that we can answer the question of how's your harvest, God, and we can say we're doing what we need to do. We can see lives being changed around us. We can see souls being saved around us. We can see your kingdom expanding and growing and needs being met. God, I pray it's true of us. Lord, move in this altar service. Draw hearts to you, Lord, and do what only you can do. Lord, we thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.